You're listening to the Sound Defense Alliance podcast. This is the Sound Defense Alliance podcast. I'm Caitlin, and I'm here with my co-host, Tara. In this episode, we are joined by guest Zoltan Grossman, who is a professor of geography and native studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. He will not only be giving us some information about the history and current strategic significance of Whidbey Island and naval bases in Northwest Washington, but he'll also be talking about how local communities are impacted by military bases, his base watch project, and more. I can't begin to encompass everything that he covers, but trust me, you will learn a lot. We'll kick things off by letting him share a bit more about his background and his work. Well, my background has been more as an activist in social movements rather than as an academic. I came to academia later, but I've been particularly working with indigenous nations on issues of treaty rights, of building alliances against multinational corporations, especially mining corporations, fossil fuel corporations, and to expose and deal with the ongoing militarization of indigenous lands in particular, but society as a whole. And so I've really been fascinated by examples of Native nations in the U.S. and indigenous nations occupied by the U.S. or in other countries that have had to deal with U.S. military presence. Joint Base Lewis-McChord near Olympia here became Fort Lewis in 1917 by taking 70% of the Nisqually Reservation and looking at that ongoing conflict relationship between a tribe and the army that actually took quite a bit of its reservation land. And it also includes, for instance, some of the U.S.-occupied islands in the Pacific, be they Hawaii or Guam, that became part of the U.S. empire in the 1890s or Okinawa in the 1940s and the ongoing military presence, what that means for land use, displacement of indigenous peoples becoming literally homeless in their own homeland and some of their sacred sites and burial sites and the exposure to contamination and crashes and and potential targeting by enemies of the U.S. like like China and North Korea. And so there's a lot of overlap I found between what is going on in some of those colonized places and some of the military bases in Western Washington, one of which JBLM is the largest military base on the West Coast. And Naval Air Station would be Island and Naval Base Kitsap have also become really important, I think, to our students at Evergreen to study as kind of laboratories of relationships between military bases as militarized spaces is kind of the legacy of colonialism. In this case, the displacement of indigenous peoples in the 1850s and the ongoing displacement of indigenous peoples by military operations. So that's kind of the angle that I've come to understand. I, I see military bases as real linchpins and learning a lot from David Vine, the author of Base Nation and the United States of War, and my own observations that bases are extremely important here and around the world. There are hundreds of U.S. bases around the world. And sometimes it's not that the bases are built in order to wage wars. I'm finding that 
the wars are being waged in order to leave behind the bases, permanent strings of U.S. military influence that, you know, extend empire into new lands that expose Americans and other peoples alike to the, the ravages of war. And, and so I think the attention to military bases is really under understood. <laughs> People focus on the kinetics of a war, but not the infrastructure that's put in place in order to wage wars. And as a geographer, I find the areas of military bases and around military bases to really be microcosms of that larger relationship between militarism and empire and local peoples, in particular, indigenous peoples. To give context for the history of Whidbey Island and Naval Air Station Whidbey Island, could you actually provide some of the history of Whidbey and its tribes and then European arrival? Yeah, I think in many ways, the story of Whidbey Island tracks with, you know, indigenous peoples in other parts of Western Washington, west of the Cascades. The difference being that when American settlement came into the air, and of course, uh, the islands are very strategic and, and have been, uh, well, in pre-colonial indigenous times as a very important canoe routes as resupply. And so they have kind of an outsized importance in indigenous history. But with the Spanish and British and American exploration, these islands became very important and sometimes contending between empires like the American and British empires. But in the 1850s, there were a series of treaties between the tribal nations and the territorial governor, Isaac Stevens, a notorious figure who wanted to remove either physically or politically the native presence in order to develop the land for agriculture, for railroads in particular, and other industries. And so there were a number of treaties, the Medicine Creek Treaty in our area of the South Sound, the uh, Point No Point Treaty for the North, Point Elliott Treaty in the kind of Seattle-Bellingham area. What's a little different about Whidbey Island is that the people on Whidbey were kind of left out. Upper Skagit, mainland branch of the Coast Salish people were included in the treaty, but the lower Skagit, the island branch of the tribe, were left out. And there were at least a few hundred members of that tribe on Whidbey. And so they didn't have access to the same fishing, hunting, gathering rights that the others did. They were eventually kind of absorbed into the Swinomish Reservation. A number of the reservations in Western Washington and Eastern Washington are actually multi-tribal. And so the richness of the soil, the fertile land on Whidbey Island, its strategic placement, both for transportation and then for the military, made it coveted territory. And so whenever land is coveted, indigenous peoples tend to lose it to not be able to retain access to it in the same way that they can other places. And so World War II, in this case, it was World War I, or right before World War I with Fort Lewis, but it was really World War II in which would be Island's role as a seaplane base, replacing Naval Air Station Seattle, which was in too crowded an area. And the Navy decided to build Alt Field and much later Outlying Field, Coopville, on the island. And that was partly because it's a less densely populated area. But of course, as 
the area is developed and the Navy brings in more people, it becomes more developed. The incredible irony in, in the language when you actually speak with the Naval personnel, you know, these are military bases that have encroached on the lands, not only of indigenous peoples, but also of farmers that were displaced in World War II. I've seen a lot of cases of farmers being treated to eminent domain, forced removal in much the same way, in a parallel way, less violent way and less racist way, but nonetheless a disempowering way as indigenous peoples were treated. They didn't have a choice. And so the Navy, the military definitely encroached on their lands. And yet the language that the Navy uses is that civilian infrastructure and housing is encroaching on their training areas. It's becoming too crowded for there to be normal military operations. And so they make the, they kind of put the blame on the civilians that, oh, there might be accidents, there might be contamination because the civilians are encroaching and there's too much development outside the bases. <laughs> and so this ironic use of language is really, really misleading. It's, of course, the military that's encroached on the civilians, not the civilians encroaching on the military. Can you share what the current significance of the Naval Air Station Whidbey Island is for the U.S. military? Well, there's always been purposes and then repurposes. And this is of military bases um, to justify keeping them open. It's not difficult to justify opening them in times of war. What becomes interesting is when the war is over and it's either peacetime or a relative peacetime, because of course the United States has never really been at peace, but there's kind of a search for new missions. And so after World War II, there was kind of a period in which, well, you know, the, the role of Naval Air Station would be island, which was important in bombing Japanese targets in Alaska during the brief Japanese occupation of a few islands in the Aleutians, as well as islands in northern Japan. And I think its role was obvious. But after World War II, many, many bases, hundreds of U.S. bases around the world and in this country were closed. And so it was not until really the Cold War, 1949, and then especially the Korean War of 1950-53, that in a sense, Nasui, the Naval Air Station, found a new purpose. Then the same kind of process happened in the late 50s, but in the 1960s, along comes the Vietnam War. And so there's kind of a new justifications for naval air station presence in the Pacific Northwest because both Korea and Vietnam were Pacific theater, you know, East Asia theater wars. And then you have the end of the Cold War in 1991, where it looked as if, like many other bases in Europe in particular, in Germany, but also in the United States, were being closed. The base closure commissions were looking at particular bases as outliving their usefulness. And there was a real possibility, a fear among some of its local economic promoters on Whidbey Island, and a um, realization maybe by the peace movement that this could actually happen. But really the heightening of tensions in East Asia with China in particular, and also North Korea, various war scares with North Korea. And I think in particular, the Middle East wars in Iraq and Afghanistan after 2001 in Afghanistan, 2003, again, 
gave kind of a lease on life to a naval air station in the Pacific Northwest because it is, even though it's a long way to the Middle East, it's one of the closest bases for a trans-Pacific route from the West Coast to the Middle East. And so uh, you had the connection with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as those started to wind down, not to wind down completely, but start to wind down because the Iraqi parliament decided it can no longer entertain U.S. presence, especially in 2011. This is before the ISIS kind of war that brought the U.S. briefly back. But there was, again, a search for a strategic mission for the U.S. military as a whole and the Naval Air Station in particular. And that's what was called the pivot to the Pacific or the pivot to Asia. It's sometimes called in the Obama administration to no longer have Europe and the Middle East as the pivot of U.S. military strategy, but really to be looking to East Asia, in particular, China, North Korea, and Pacific as a whole and U.S. basing strategy in the Pacific from the West Coast to Hawaii, Guam in particular. And so that has really reinvigorated the military bases, in particular Washington State. There's quite a few bases have closed in California. But because Washington is, I think, in the northwest corner and in terms of flights is actually closer, I don't foresee any of the bases in Washington state being positioned for base closure anytime soon. And that really is because of the heightened competition between the U.S. and China and to a lesser extent, the possibility of another Korean War. So that has to do partly with tensions over Taiwan, which actually have grown worse in recent months and even days because of the clouded status of Taiwan, but also Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created or enhanced analysis in the Pentagon that perhaps China could invade Taiwan in the same way. And then there's the recurring tensions in the South China Sea between China asserting its claim to different islands and kind of an oil-rich environment and its competition with all the other powers, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Taiwan, that also feel they have a presence. And so the flashpoint for a major war, not like a counterinsurgency war like in Iraq and Afghanistan, but a major war between two nuclear-armed rivals, the highest risk in the world really is in the Pacific with China and North Korea. And then I think also Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the use of the growlers, uh, sending the growlers to Poland for potential electronic warfare. I'm not sure what's happened with them since they got there, but kind of using some of the military assets of Naval Air Station Whitby Island in an actual warfare situation where the U.S. isn't directly involved, but is pretty highly indirectly involved. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned the possibility of targeting, potential for disaster or accidents. What are your thoughts on the fact that all of the Growler jets are single-sided at Naval Air Station Whidbey Island, and how does that impact our community? That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought of that. I know that in the Pacific, there's increasing concern about not only you know the possibility of accidents, of crashes, but actually being targeted that you know, supposedly these bases enhance security and increase safety. And yet if you're living on Guam and you're Chamoru, whose people have been there for millennia, 
and you hear about China developing a new missile, which they call the Guam killer in that parlance, that could potentially wipe out your entire culture. I think the brief false nuclear attack alert that was issued in Hawaii, that was a mistaken alert that was sent to all cell phones, that the North Koreans had launched a nuclear missile towards Hawaii was a real wake-up call for people in Hawaii that, you know, despite all of the military propaganda that bases increased security, that in a time of war, they would again, as they were in December 1941, become a target. And I think it's not really well understood in Alaska or the Pacific Northwest that we are within range of Chinese missiles, potentially of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles from, from China. All cities are from Russia, but that's been, I think people are numb to that because that's been the reality for so many decades. But I think the possibility of a shooting war over Taiwan or the South China Sea, the possibility of conflict between North Korea and South Korea, which could quickly turn nuclear, that some of the missiles that North Korea have tested now are in the ICBM category that could potentially reach part of the United States and the part of the contiguous 48 states that's the closest is the Pacific Northwest. And so you're right, the idea that there's one asset, the growler, which are important for electronic jamming, for electronic warfare, are located in one place really does make the Naval Air Station a potential target. I think JBLM is a potential target and definitely Naval Base Kitsap, Bangor, with the shipyards at Bremerton, when it comes to nuclear subs, I believe if Kitsap County were an independent country, I believe it would be the third largest nuclear power. Any three of those base clusters in Western Washington are, would be targets in a nuclear war. And that's not even counting some of the possibilities of future warfare that would be not nuclear, but conventional with hypersonic missiles, the kind of era of warfare, of space warfare that we're getting into, that even without a full-scale nuclear war or an exchange of nuclear weapons one for one, which is lower scale, that we could even in a future war become targeted with these kind of new weapon systems that are non-nuclear. So that kind of narrows the threshold between possibility and reality. If, you know, an exchange of missiles is not nuclear, or if it's small scale tactical nuclear weapons, it becomes a greater possibility. Using strategic nuclear weapons means there's going to be retaliation. You're going to lose your capital if you're in, you know, Pyongyang or Beijing or whatever. But if it's tactical nuclear weapons, if it's non-nuclear weapons, then it just increases the possibility that a leader or a general will cross that gap, will cross that threshold into the war. Yeah, I think Pacific Northwest is at risk if a war breaks out either with China or North Korea, not to mention Russia. Yikes. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I mean, it's the reality and it doesn't even take into account the threat of climate change and okay, what if, you know, a major weather event hits Whidbey Island and the Naval Air Station and all of yeah. these growlers are stationed there. But 
shifting just slightly, I would love it if you could tell us a bit about your Base Watch project that's part of your course, A People's Geography of American Empire, and what your students have learned about the Naval Air Station through their research. Well, I think there was a lot going on in Olympia around the Iraq War in the 2000s. There were protests down at the Port of Olympia against the shipment of striker armored vehicles from Fort Lewis to Iraq and back again. And so there was a, a real awareness, I think, of the effects of war, but very little understanding of the military bases that are kind of out of sight, out of mind. You can drive along our highways, our interstates, and you might see a few buildings, you might see an exit sign, but these are kind of blank spaces on the map for civilians who haven't been inside, who don't understand the extent of them, the importance of them, and how they're kind of linchpins and military strategy that connect us in particular to the Pacific, but also to other parts of the world in ways that I don't think people understand. And then I think the awareness in our area of Naval Air Station Whidbey Island was the lowest. It was kind of like up there, people knew about it, but hearing the growlers <laughs> was um, mind-blowing for our students, for myself, really high tension, high stress, especially at night, very late at night, people would be sitting around the campfire and couldn't believe the decibels couldn't, you know, and I'd lived near airports before, including military airports, and I had never heard anything like it. And then I also had a class that was visiting with the Quileute Nation out on the coast, and we were staying in Forks. And same thing, we we're sitting around the campfire, and here's these growlers way overhead. It didn't matter that they were way overhead doing their electromagnetic warfare games. It was ear splitting and you couldn't carry on a conversation. And then I started reading about some of the Vietnam veterans who were trying to find peace as they have for decades after the Vietnam War, trying to find solace in the forest of the Olympic Peninsula, but are being reintroduced to their wartime trauma by the presence of these growlers. And that's not to mention the effect on effects on wildlife, on uh, migration. So I really thought that we would need to educate the public about the presence of all three base clusters in Western Washington. There are other ones in Eastern Washington, but it was almost biting off more than we could chew. And so we had our students kind of divide up different themes, different stories, because each of those bases have different things going on. So for Naval Air Station Whidbey Island, we kind of looked at the overall history at the noise from the growlers and the drive by the Navy to add more to its growler fleet, 36 more. It was right in the middle of that controversy in 2018-19. The electromagnetic war games over the Olympic Peninsula. And then the whole question of the water contamination, the groundwater contamination on Whidbey Island from the PFAS forever chemicals, the firefighting foam that has poisoned the groundwater at Naval Air Station Whidbey Island more than any other base in the United States. And so this is a pattern we see in other parts of the Pacific. We see contamination. There's a huge movement that actually includes military personnel and their families on Hawaii because of an oil storage depot that's leaking into the groundwater of Oahu 
near Pearl Harbor. And of course, they're being exposed to contamination in their groundwater, the possibility of crashes, the fact that the military has the choicest real estate and has displaced indigenous people. So what we're seeing in Western Washington, even though it's part of the United States, the 48 states, is not that different from what's being seen in some of these colonies in the Pacific, like Hawaii, like Guam, like Okinawa. And I don't think people understand that here in the same way that they do perhaps in those places where the military presence is more visible and more obvious, not hidden behind giant trees. I'm from Wisconsin. I'm not used to these giant trees, and I think they mask a lot. I think people don't understand the extent of these bases. So Basewatch, sites.evergreen.edu slash Basewatch. That website was an attempt to just do some rudimentary education of the public about all three base clusters. So people would have some background, some history, some understanding. There might be a story in the news, like of our state attorney general suing the Navy over the growler expansion and the noise, but it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. I think if you're not living on Whidbey Island, you're not hearing about these these controversies. I think it's in a couple of newspapers up there. We rarely hear about it and the Olympian once in a while in the Seattle Times. And so these supposedly local issues really are state issues, really are national and international issues and should be understood as such. I think you're right that it is definitely a national issue. And we are going to put the link to the base watch resource in the show notes so that people can learn more about these local base clusters and that's also the goal of the podcast is yeah we want these local issues to become a lot more widespread so that more people can gain awareness and while the podcast is more focused on the growler jet noise issue we're also going to have another episode where we have someone talk very specifically about the PFAs and that water contamination. So yeah, we do want to cover a lot of these controversies surrounding the naval base. And I just had another question real quick. When I was reading through some of your students' writings on the Base Watch website, one of them in the general history of the base wrote, even though NAS Woodby Island has had a predominantly good relationship with its neighboring communities, there have still been some controversy. And then they go on to talk about some of the controversies around the base. But can you talk about the history of that so-called good relationship and how that may have shifted over time? Yeah, and I don't know a, a lot about it from a local perspective. I have friends who are from Whidbey Island, from Oak Harbor, from the area that basically talk about how you know, just as the military operations ebb and flow, and I've seen this at JBLM, the employment around a base ebbs and flows. So during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, there are constantly traffic jams next to JBLM. You know, since the wars were scaled down, there's not as much activity. And I think that's true after every war. So the problem is that the military presence does enhance economic development for certain industries, you know, for retail, for bars, for restaurants, tattoo shops, you know. And so you see certain kinds of communities that are tailored towards military personnel. In Asia, in South Korea in particular, they're called camp towns, and where it's not necessarily, 
you know, the local business community is really happy that these people and, and sometimes their families are there. There's an orientation actually now to have families not follow the personnel to have a smaller presence. There are situations dramatically in places like Okinawa, but less visible, I think, around U.S. military bases of women in particular not feeling safe in some of these military-based communities, the civilian strips outside military bases. And so perhaps having a military orientation of local businesses precludes perhaps you know, and, and having some people come in and spend money may preclude other people coming in and spending money. And also, I think the presence of the noise prevents the kind of tourist, resort, weekend getaway kind of economy that we have in much the rest of Western Washington, in particular in gorgeous area around Whidbey Island. Deception Pass is one of the jewels of this area, but there's a lot of people who tell me that they won't, they'll, they'll go to Deception Pass, but they're not going to camp around there because they're sick of the noise. Then I wonder what's happened with property values because of the growlers, especially on that northern end around Altfield and the central area around outlying field Coopville. And so, you know, on one hand, the military has made local civilian communities dependent on the military, in this case, the Navy, and oriented their economy on one track. And because that's so easy for some of the local leadership, they don't think about diversifying. They don't think about preparing for a possible future without a base or maybe using the income in order to develop other areas like tourism because there are kind of these built-in contradictions. So I think the economic dependency of places like Oak Harbor on the military and a built-in constituency that at least tends to be more favorable towards the military, and that's military veterans themselves. Although I wouldn't necessarily put them all in the same category because some of the fiercest critics of the military, <laughs> the ones who know what they're talking about and can see through the misrepresentations and lies are veterans themselves, including students. And my class, Evergreen, has a large number of veterans taking courses. And my class, People's Geography of American Empire, was no exception. And so some of them really want to learn about the context of why they were deployed to other countries. And some of them have lived in these base communities and have found both positive and negative aspects of them. But it tends to be that the military will turn to the veteran community to try and shore up some of the political support when there are controversies like the growler noise or the PFAS groundwater contamination. But eventually, some of the families themselves, like if you're poisoning the groundwater, you're poisoning the groundwater of a largely active duty or veteran community. If the noise is there, that's affecting military families disproportionately from other people, from civilians, or people who don't necessarily have a relationship with the military. So I think this unlikely alliance we have in Hawaii of military families, uh, environmental activists, peace activists, I don't think that that's the first and only time that that's going to happen. We see aspects of that even in Washington state. I think 
It's great that you all are helping to raise more awareness. Like you said, a lot of people who don't live around Whidbey or maybe the peninsula, they don't hear about this as much as they should because it really is an issue that's impacting so many folks around Washington and the nation. There's the communities who are going through similar cases. So thank you for putting on that program. Yeah, and I always try and in any programs I do to expose students to all points of view so they can understand the different perspectives. They may not agree with them, but you know, I've taken students inside JBLM with both Nisqually tribal and army staff accompanying us and, and kind of hearing the history of that relationship. When we went to Altfield, we visited with the commanders and had a meeting of our class with them and heard their perspective. And it was a bit tense when some of the students, including the veteran students, in a polite way, challenged some of what was being said because they had studied the various issues. But it was a very interesting exchange. I think both sides got something out of it, both the visiting students and the military personnel. And it also was a window into perhaps what they thought of the civilian population and also for the natural population. So I remember them saying there's really no problem with the growlers because there was a bald eagle nest that was sighted somewhere near Altfield. And so that was just kind of interesting how they justified. But one thing that really struck our students is the Naval staff were talking about the hotline for reporting noise issues. And apparently there's there are quite a few calls, but they were complaining that there were some individuals that were calling multiple times. <laughs> And it's like, well, yeah, if you're in an area that's, you know, near one of the runways or especially where the the jets are banking, turning in order to land and are particularly loud at that point, you're going to call more than once. And calling more than once is also a way to document that there are multiple exposures to the noise, but they were resenting this and basically painting the civilians that did this as troublemakers. So saying, yeah, there's been a lot of calls, but it just comes from these people who don't like us. Instead of saying, hey, there's there's a problem here. There are some people who are impacted more than others. And then also when they were giving reasons as to why the growler operations in particular or naval air operations in general were not being moved to a more remote area because they're just like in Nevada was the example given. And I'm not really on board necessarily with that because moving it to somewhere else affects other people. In Nevada, there are, you know, Western Shoshone or the Paiute who have been, there are white ranchers who have been impacted by the noise and their cattle. So I'm not necessarily a proponent of moving impacts around, but it would definitely be a less populated area with less possibility of accidents, of noise impacts, of all of that. But their justification is, well, we move it somewhere else and then people move there because we're there and then the same problem happens over again. It was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that there will be these impacts and there's nothing we can do about them instead of the idea perhaps scaling back or perhaps putting an aircraft carrier off the coast instead of using outlying field coupeville so there are some alternatives my feeling in the larger picture is demilitarization negotiated peace between different 
countries not having foreign military bases by any power, United States, Russia, China, and, uh, you know, enforcing that. But I think, you know, the, the military has a particular mindset that if it doesn't get its way, the security of the country is endangered. And there, I think one of the missions, it seems, of Sound Defense Alliance is that respectful relationship between civilians and the military in the United States, and especially outside the United States, actually enhances our security. It de-escalates, it reduces friction, reduces conflict, dismantling some of the bases both abroad and in this country in conjunction you know, with other powers could go a long way in heightening safety and security and protecting the environment and the climate because the military in the U.S. in particular, but all militaries around the world are the largest contributors of any industry to greenhouse gases. I calculated that I would have to ride my bike to work for seven years to save the fuel that an F-16 burns in one hour. <laughs> and you know yeah. so we uh, really... we have an episode about that too. yeah <laughs> we have the, uh... we have an expert come on and talk about yeah the the massive climate impacts of flying the growler jets for yeah. even a very yeah. short amount of time so absolutely and you're definitely right about the goals of the SDA of promoting cooperation between the community and the base. And in terms of those calls to the complaint line, we are definitely encouraging people to make those. So hopefully they will be getting a wider variety of calls and they'll be able to see that it's a widespread issue. It's not just the same people who are, you know, rightfully calling when the, the jets are flying over their house multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. One of our students who was a veteran saying, if I lived here, I would be calling every day. <laughs> yes. Like, <okay. laughs> yeah. I think, you know, people will have different opinions about the military, militarism. There's some people who are pro-military and anti-war, pro-soldier and anti-war. There are some people who are even pro-war and anti-military. You know, people have a whole range of views on the military. But I think one of the things that we can agree on is that when a military makes an argument that what it's doing is for the safety of the people of a country, that it doesn't contribute to dangers, whether it's contamination or noise or accidents, crashes, targeting by foreign powers, that this argument for security doesn't actually increase security. You know, military personnel themselves are the most at risk of some of these things. Their families are pretty much the second most at risk. And the civilian population that supposedly is being, its freedom is supposedly being guarded, is having its freedoms taken away for clean water, for free speech, to be able to lobby the government to have its voices heard, you know, defending freedom with having less freedom. And so there are all these contradictions into that relationship between military and civilians and relationship between the military and its own people who have even less of a voice, aren't able to express themselves as freely, and that sometimes they need to channel their concerns and grievances through civilian organizations. And so I think in some ways, issues like this can, at the 
base actually improve relations between civilians and military people who are living in a community because they're in the same boat together. The civilians tend to have more of a voice because the military families tend to be afraid of the repercussions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I am really hoping that this podcast makes it all around and especially gets to the military community. It is really hard to have those conversations and bring those things up when you're so deep in it. And you're right, there are repercussions. So SCA is here to speak up for all the people impacted by the jets and who are being harmed. And that includes pilots themselves and the families living there. And yeah, it's not just the farmers and teachers and kids and animals. It's everyone here. So it is really important that, you know, we're speaking up for everyone because everyone's being harmed. Thanks for doing this important work on what seems like a local issue, but is really much broader and has much larger implications for for our environment, for our climate, for our democracy, that uh, more democracy <laughs> protects democracy. A huge thank you to Zoltan for coming on the podcast and sharing such a breadth of knowledge about not just the impact of the growlers and the naval bases in Northwest Washington, but the impact on communities that military bases have all around the world. There are links in the show notes for Zoltan and his students' Base Watch program, articles that he has written, ways that you can get involved with efforts against the growler jet noise, and more. Thank you so much for listening.